Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Tonight, I'm talking to Alex Hunnell from Black Button Distilling. Alex, welcome. Thanks a lot, David. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, this is going to be episode somewhere around like high 30s or 40s of the podcast. And um, something that I've been trying to do in part is to focus a little bit more on New York distillers and New York distilleries. So thrilled to have you on to talk about not only a New York distillery, but one that's outside of New York City. We appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, New York State's uh, got a lot going on, and especially in the farm distillery uh, and craft distillery regions uh, around the entire state. I mean, all the way from your neck of the woods, all the way up to Western New York, where we're at. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, where you guys are at is Rochester, mm-hmm. up in North New York, <laughs> West Northwest New York, say. Um uh, you know, it's it's a weird thing being from New York City, like and Long Island, my entire life. It, there's New York City, Long Island, Westchester, Rockland, and there's everything else, in a way. Yeah, <laughs> but, it's um, pretty funny. I, I do find uh, I actually lived in New York City for about six years before I moved up to. Uh, I live in Buffalo, so we're just a little bit further west. To be honest, <laughs> most people think I live in Canada. Uh, but I mean, I think once you're you get closer beyond, to Canada than, yeah. than most of the states. So, I mean, heck down from downtown Buffalo, you can look right across the water to Canada. Um, right. but it is funny. I think once you get beyond the Hudson Valley, everyone just thinks that's all upstate. So nobody realizes mm-hmm. that's about a six hour drive of upstate. And not to mention if you actually go straight upstate, there's still a lot more to go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let's dive right in. What's, um, the, you know, the origin story of black button. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am not the owner. Uh, I get to do a lot with our barrel program, but uh, Jason Barrett started the company. Uh, He was born and raised in Rochester, New York, and he had been working down in D.C. for a while. You know, he had done some home brewing, really had a kind of an interest in that, but he was actually doing uh, payroll software and doing sales down in D.C. and had had a chance to start kind of working in the background of some wineries, distilleries and breweries and seeing that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in that. And he really had a great passion for that kind of production. Uh, and it ties back to his own family having a long history in making uh, buttons in Rochester, New York. So we'll get into that in a little bit where it ties into the name. Um, but when Jason decided he wanted to make that leap, he actually kind of sold everything he had. Uh, he actually went out to Washington state and he worked with dry fly distilling out in Spokane for a while. Uh, got a distilling background that way. And then took everything he had and some uh, some money he raised locally in Rochester and uh, broke ground in 2012 to start Black Button Distilling. I guess I didn't realize how uh, that dry fly had been around for that long. They've been around for a while, man. I mean, they were uh, mm-hmm. one of the early on distilleries that kind of helped, I think, some of the craft producers get started. Um, and even Jason, as he kind of got a little more established, he began doing some, some classes and, and some training for distillers that are now running their own distilleries today. That's awesome. I, yeah, I when you think about Pacific Northwest distillers, I'm I guess I'm thinking there really were only like one or two of them. I always think of distilling like it's kind of starting in Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, and then you know, slowly get to like Texas, New York, Pennsylvania. But um, yeah, I didn't realize that dry fly had been around that long for him to have been there for a while, then found Black Button in, in 2012. So you're now 10 years old. This is the year, yeah. Around. Pretty excited now we're in 10th year. Um, so we'll we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, so that's the origin story of the distillery itself. So let's bring it back to the, the button itself, the black button. Yep. So Jason's uh, great-great-grandfather uh, actually started sweeping floors at a local uh, button factory in Rochester, New York. 
and slowly but surely worked himself up to where he became a part owner and one of the sole owners in the button factory. And then that was handed down through the family uh, and the company still exists today. Actually, uh, Jason's mother is the chairperson of the company. But when he was younger, he would go in when the factory was still around and he would help clean up during the day with his grandfather, sweep up buttons. Uh, and they'd find out that when he was trying to sort them, he was having issues, not with the shape and size, but the color of the buttons, getting them right. And they came to find out that Jason was actually colorblind. Mm -hmm. So the joke in the whole family became, if he ever was going to take over the company, he could only make black buttons. Jason gotcha. does hold that. And he says he does that, but he makes just the liquid varietal these days. Fair. Fair. When, uh, so he's born and raised in Rochester. So that yep. kind of makes sense from a why Rochester mm -hmm. perspective. And um, I'll be honest, most of the time when I think about asking someone, you know, why did you start a distillery in this particular place, be it a, a major city, middle of nowhere and everything in between, usually it comes down to, yep, they either live there their whole life or they're raised, born and raised there. What, but there's still the option, of course, of going somewhere else. So, uh, you know, Jason was out in, in Washington state with, with dry fly. Then of course, wanted to come back to Rochester. Did the thought come back to kind of making the distillery first versus come back to Rochester first? And, and yeah, so let's, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, like, like you see, I, like, like the thought process of getting to, to Rochester itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, I think that Jason did want to come back to his hometown. I mean, his family was still there. His parents were there. Um, I think he really loved Rochester always. And just post-college, it made sense. You know, he actually, for a while, was interning on the Hill in D.C. And just realized he did not want to be in politics. It was just not his thing. So that's where he, you know, he's got a really good numbers mind, which is, you know, really a positive thing to have for a distillery. It's a very numbers-based, regulations-based business. You have to understand that part of it. Uh, but I think he wanted to come back to Rochester. Um, and actually, when we opened our doors, we were the first uh, distillery since Prohibition to make a bourbon in Rochester, New York. So I think that also was one of the big pieces that, you know, he wanted to start a business. He wanted to work with his hands. He wanted to create something. And it just made sense to come home. Uh, not to mention, we actually have a really great water source where we're at in downtown Rochester. So if you've ever heard of Genesee Brewing, uh, the wonderful Jenny cream ale that people in college in upstate and Western New York, uh, that's kind of the go-to college beer. Uh, but they have a water source that comes off of what's called Hemlock Lake. And Hemlock Lake has a limestone basin, which is very similar to what you would find in Kentucky. So we've got really good bourbon water that we can get right downtown in the city. Uh, we've got, you know, a urban center that is, a, I don't know actually what our number is in Rochester. I know from where I'm at in Buffalo is the number two in New York state, funny enough. Uh, but you've got an urban center, you've got people, you've got a great community in Rochester, New York. And I think it all just made sense. Uh, not to mention that New York State had a farm distillery license available, where mm -hmm. if you can use, you know, more than 75, 80% of New York State ingredients, you get a great opportunity to get some tax subsidies, uh, while also supporting New York State agriculture. And we've got great product right here in New York to create everything we're doing. So I think it all just worked out perfectly that you know, Jason could do something where he could work with his hands, he could create something, he could build a business in his hometown, while he could also support agriculture, support New York State, uh, and really try to make the most premier product he could based on all that. I mean, it all makes sense. And, and having a limestone basin to strip out that iron is definitely going to be helpful. Water source, you don't have, to, don't have to treat it any further or anything like that. Uh, being in the urban center is definitely something I want to ask about too, because uh, you speak about the New York State farm subsidies and uh, and such and 
one of my uh, earlier guests on the podcast was Paul Coughlin from Taconic Distilling. And yeah. I've you know been up to that distillery. I haven't been to Black Button yet. I'm, I will, of course, make the trip up there at some point. But Taconic, it's you know, an hour and a half, two hours north of New York City, just mm-hmm. straight up the Hudson Valley. But it is very much kind of in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by farmlands. There's one street, if you call it, and you kind of just come out of by accident in a way. <laughs> But you guys are in the city center or, you know, in the urban center, let's say, of Rochester. Sure. Uh, and I would imagine that there are uh, perhaps opportunities for sure, but but challenges that go along with that, that you would not necessarily face in a more rural environment, speaking strictly of physical space. Um, so what what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, I think you're not wrong at all. Uh, it's funny, I was, we were talking about it today. You know, one of the, the big points is you have to have all of your, your storage within about 10 miles of the distillery. So, you know, the nice thing, if you're, you know, if you're on a 10 acre plot in the middle of Kentucky, you know, think of all the big guys, you know, they just keep, you know, it's like, oh, we need a new rickhouse. Let's just go pick that little plot of land that we own already. And there's nothing on. Mm-hmm. If we have the same thing, it's, well, we either have to find something potentially demolish and rebuild uh, or find a building that fits what we need. Hopefully our landlord wants to let us keep staying there and keep storing whiskey. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't change their mind. I mean, it, it does have its own difficulties. I think there's always great to kind of be in the buzz and the energy of a, an urban center and be around where people are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, the Finger Lakes is very, very close to us. We're about an hour from the majority of the lakes. And, you know, there's a number of uh, good distilleries, you know, Finger Lakes distilleries out that way. And you can put yourself right there. You're on a wine trail. So, you know, you can get the best, kind of the best of both worlds. But I think Jason really wanted to be downtown. And, you know, we call ourselves an urban farm distillery for that reason, because we are in the heart of it all. Uh, and we're yeah, I mean, we have our difficulties, you know, but we have really great historic buildings that we're able to refurbish and utilize. And I think that just being in the heart of it all made so much sense. Yeah, fair enough. I'm, of course, thinking of comparisons here and there's Taconic. I'm also thinking Kings County down here in, in Brooklyn. Yep. And I mean, when I first visited them in the Navy Yards a couple of years ago, there was nothing else there. It was just them and the concrete building and the Cardass. Now there's a Wegmans and all this, a lot of stuff. And I love Wegmans, but it's impossible to get there now. <laughs> Uh, but one of the biggest things, of course, as you mentioned, storage is a huge consideration, yep. um, but also the uh, the still types and and just the import export of grain and product is is limiting in a certain way. So, um, you know, paint a picture for us of, of what that distillery looks like in terms of housing the stills in a smaller location or more compact location. I will say uh, it. We are fortunate that we have just enough space for what we need to do today. Um, but very soon, I think we will end up needing more space. It, so if you kind of come into the building, you walk right in the gate or the, um, the garage door, open that up. You're going to have, I don't know, probably eight, eight feet around you that you're walking through. And you'll walk in. We'll have some tanks on the left side. They hold bourbon pretty consistently. So you've probably got 15, maybe 20 feet of space right there. The distiller's desks are right there. And I mean, I'm talking when you have a fork that's coming through, the mm-hmm. distillers cannot have their chairs out. You're, you're tucked <laughs> pretty tight, you know, belly to the desk if you're going to have a fork coming by you based on what's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, same thing, you know, we'll have a tank, you come around a corner, you've got kind of an L turn, then the stills all live right there. So we have our pot still, um, we have a four plate column still and a, uh, I believe, 16 plate column still that goes up and actually we had to cut a hole in the ceiling to fit all the way up for the column. Uh, and then from there, gooseneck where the actual uh, finished dis- distillate comes out. 
a 1600 uh, mash tun is sitting right there, 1600 gallon. Turn to the next slide, we have our stripping still, we have a small R&D still, and then we have, I believe, seven fermenters beyond that. Uh, and then right behind that, we have our bottling line, which can do about a thousand bottles an hour. Uh, and then a couple additional tanks, uh, specifically, you know, clean to handle cream when we come in with our cream. Right, so right. we put a lot in a small enough space, but I mean, I've seen days with the forks, you know, we're, we're doing work with the forks, <laughs> have just enough room to get that work done. So we are working pretty tight. That's fair. I mean, if you can do it, that's, that's great. There's nothing against it. I'm just always curious to, to see, you know, almost like a packaging engineer figuring out the tiniest spaces an inch where you can give or take here or there. And speaking of that cream, um, thank you to, <laughs> to you and to Black Button for sending a few samples of different products my way to try. Um, tried them all. I'm actually sipping on the Empire Rye as we speak. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but the bourbon cream in particular was really excellent. We appreciate that. Yeah, It's definitely a product that it kind of surprised all of us. Uh, and actually, I'll be honest, it came before my time. Um, I started with the company around the end of 2017. I think the cream was right around the end of 2015 into 2016. And more or less, Jason's dad, uh, engineer, you know, has a long, has that kind of mindset, but I will say the guy likes a glass of Chardonnay more than most things. And that was kind of his challenge to Jason was, you know, make something that I would like. So, you know, he also likes Bailey's during the holidays, likes that Irish cream. And Jason said, well, you know, people are making bourbon cream. So let me see if I can make one, you know, we'll do it as a one-time thing only. We'll release it in the tasting room. And then, you know, that'll be it. And my dad has something he liked for the year. Uh, fast forward to Christmas sells out every single bottle and fast forward, you know, five plus years down the line. That's our number one product in our line. Uh, it's more than 60% wow. of our total sales as a company. And probably you and I wouldn't be having this conversation tonight if we didn't have the bourbon cream. Cause, uh, it definitely defined black button on the larger scale, which allows us to do all the more fun stuff that we like to do, like single barrels and rise and aged whiskeys that we really like to play with. That's incredible. I mean, that, I wouldn't have thought that that would have been your, your number one seller, certainly a high volume, but not, not 60%. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Oh, nobody would have thought that in day one. Again, Jason, like I said, he just made it as like kind of a one-off, like, all right, sure, dad, I'll make this for you. So you got something to drink that I make. Right. But then, and, yeah, everyone loved it. Yeah. So. It's just an easy one. I mean, we get the cream out of Batavia, New York, which is about 40 minutes, uh, you know, South and West of Rochester. So it's an ultra pasteurized cream. Mix it with bourbon and some natural caramel color, and that's about it. That was great. I put it on a uh, stainless steel cube. It was perfect because I, I, it's one of those things that I do like cold. Mm -hmm. I think it just works better cold. Um, but I also didn't want to water it down because it's. Yep. I think it was it was just right as it was. Consistency wise, it was really excellent. Um, so you know, diving into the products now, the, so what was the, the first? What are the first few years look like? Like was it producing more vodkas, gins, clear spirits to get off the, off the ground? Yep. You're right on the nail. I mean, uh, we were one of the distilleries that from day one, we wanted to make our own bourbon. So we didn't source anything. You know, we, we started once we kind of figured out the mash bill we liked. And once we started to figure out how we were going to do that process and figure out how we were actually going to make it and make it in our own way. Um, our four grain bourbon, which is the blue label one you were trying, uh, mm -hmm. that that's the flagship that's been the same mash bill roughly since day we, I don't know, probably the, some say actually finalized what it was going to be. That's the mash bill we've been playing with. We have a couple other mash bills. We've done a couple of things some tasting room only releases, but that's really the flagship we work with. Um, but as you know, it takes time. So 
we did start to release some bourbon, you know, within the first, you know, eight, 10, 12 months, just a little bit here and there, just to kind of give people a taste of what we're starting to work on. But obviously, even though we believe our process makes a pretty refined bourbon at a younger age, under a year is still very, very young. <laughs> That's sure. just starting to give you a little bit of an idea. So yes, we were doing our citrus forward gin, which was the recipe that Jason came up with based on the fact he really doesn't like gin. So he figured if he has to make one to kind of keep some cash flow, he was going to make one that he more enjoyed. So lighter on the juniper character, heavier on citrus and baking spice, a uh, little bit of anise. You get a little bit of kind of black licorice character to it. It's a pretty unique, almost, I mean, it's a nice flexible cocktail gin, but it's also a good sipping gin. All right. So it'd be more, yeah, more fruit forward, more, uh, you know, fresher, brighter, more acidic as opposed to the, the bitterness from the juniper. Pretty aggressive on a martini just because it's so character forward. Uh, it's right. definitely not like we do did make an American dry gin, which is a lot cleaner. Uh, something the current day-to-day distiller, uh, master distiller, Jeff Fairbrother, he wanted to make us his first product. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the original was our citrus forward gin. Uh, at that time, we also did a 20-plate wheat vodka, which just means we actually ran that through all of the plates, both our whiskey column and our vodka column mm-hmm. uh, during the process of the run. Uh, even though we don't make that product anymore, just based on having a 30 to $35 vodka on the market as a craft distillery that didn't love making vodka. It was just never going to be our number one, sure. but it became the base of our gin still. So we still make that vodka, but it's the base of what our gin is. Right. And I mean, this, the just notion of creating the clear spirits first and the gins and the younger bourbons, that's kind of a standard model at this point when you're, when you're starting out, unless you're starting out with either source product, which you guys said you're, we're not going to use from the beginning yep. or taking kind of a, a wilderness trail approach where you're like, I'm not going to put anything out until <laughs> four years old, but that requires, you know, intensive capital behind you to be able to, to hold all that. Correct. So, so early on, you decide on the four grain bourbon recipe with the blue yep. label. And I definitely did want to talk about this first. So I've been, kind of experiencing more and more four grain bourbons mm-hmm. recently. I, it's, it's just been a very organic trend. I don't know why, but I've noticed more distilleries putting these out. Um, and it's uh, a different flavor profile. And I'm speaking very generally, not even just about yeah. black bud, but it's a very different flavor profile than the typical three grain recipe for either bourbon or rye from like Kentucky or, you know, pick anyone in Kentucky and sure. <laughs> kind of fits. Um, and I was talking last week with Nick Moss from uh, Dancing Goat. Okay. Um, I don't know if you know about them. Um, they're up in uh, Wisconsin. I have heard of them. I don't know much about their actual product, but I have heard of them out of the Wisconsin area. Yeah. So uh, they also do a four grain bourbon, and cool. among you know the things, and uh, but they, they're it's also just a totally different model. They're kind of doing a blend of sourced and in-house. And so it's, it's a different model, but the point being that <laughs> we were talking about mash bills and how you can kind of use the grains at your disposal to create a different profile and counter some effects. Now, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I'll just come out and say it, that, that distilleries often face an issue with early on is that a young bourbon or a young anything mm-hmm. tastes young. It can taste a little raw, a little grainy. Um, And Nick said one of the things you can do is to add in, particularly particularly with wheat, but also 
you know, just the mash bill itself, you can kind of soften the youth by doing a four grain recipe as opposed to a three grain. Um, so I was curious based on that, you know, how the four grain recipe came about rather than using a more traditional, you know, three grain or even two grain recipe. I think Jason, part of it was that at that time, there weren't as many four grains on the market. And I think if you're going to bust in, Jason was looking for an opportunity. Uh, and not to mention, he liked what the profile of a four grain did. Um, mm-hmm. It's very drinkable. It's a little bit lighter. Um, it's not as heavily sweet, I think, as a lot of the, you know, the more like heavy corn three grain blends. Mm-hmm. You do get a little bit more of the rye can actually punch through, even though it's a lower percentage. Um, and even the malted barley can just play a little bit more in the overall blend. I mean, we pick up more like leathers and tobacco kind of notes based mm-hmm. both on the, the blend of the grains we're using and also the size of the barrels. Cause a lot of it we're using 15s and thirties, which we're just kind of getting out of, you know, the 15 gallons are just about done for us. Mm-hmm. We're going to live in a world of 30 gallons here for a little while, uh, but we have 53s laid down. And I'd say, you know, we're going to probably at this point be able to, most of the bourbon that we're trying these days is three or four years old. So we still say two years on the label because some of the 15s, you know, when we taste them, they've kind of hit a peak between that two and three year mark somewhere in that range. Sure. Um, heck, I tried some 15s uh, the other week that were five plus years old and they had kind of gone the other way. They'd gone the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So they weren't really going to be, they're just not, you know, they're not single barrel quality. They're not, they're even hard to put in a blend just because they don't have the right character. So now it's a debate. Is it a reblend? Is it a rebarrel? What do we do with it at this point? Um, I would imagine at, at four or five years in a 15 gallon barrel, that's got to be woody as hell. It wasn't even that it was woody as hell. That's actually the first thing I expected. It just had lost complexity. It had just gotten kind of one note. There was definitely, you know, there was a lot of oak on it, but I've seen more oak like on a double barrel 30 gallon that we, you know, lowered the proof on a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it just, it just lost complexity. It, it just was way too long, which is why. I was laughing. I see people like going crazy over 20 plus year old bourbons. Like, sure. Some of them are very interesting, but some of them are just, you know, like drinking tannic maple syrup. I mean, it's, it's just such a thick, very little bourbon mm-hmm. left at that point. No, I, I fully agree there. Uh, my sweet spot is usually between like eight to 13 for a larger oh. distillery. Sure. Uh, three to four, maybe seven for a smaller distillery or a newer distillery. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with very few exceptions. And I, I can literally count them on one hand. Bourbons that are older than about 15 to 18 years, I, I just don't enjoy them for mainly for that reason. Either they become flat or they're too woody. Yep. Or some people, um, a lot of distillers actually make the choice to proof them down, mm-hmm. which works it only was worked in one thought it, for my palate at least. Sure. And, but usually it just tastes like oak water to me at that point. Yeah. You know, if you take something that's 20 years old and you lower it to 90 proof and suddenly it's, it's just oak water, but, um, and that's with a 53 gallon barrel, but anyway, back to black button. No, you're <laughs> so, fine. It, it is definitely interesting, but yeah, I would just say the four grain blend was based on kind of where Jason saw the market that day, kind of his own preferences and what he mm-hmm. liked in the flavor of a bourbon. Um, and I, I can't speak for him if the idea of putting a wheat kind of a larger wheat base, you know, we're using 20% wheat in our mash bill um, and we're, we're very open. So we're 60 corn, 20 wheat, 11 malted barley and nine rye. That's our four grain. It's on the label. Most of the time it's on our website. We have no problem telling you exactly what we're doing. Um, but I, I think that it 
kind of came along with that and also part of our distillation practice, which also was partially just an accident. Um, when Jason was studying, he had learned double pass distillation and accidentally bought equipment that was set up to do single pass distillations. Mm-hmm. So then he kind of hit a conundrum of well, you can either run it straight from the pot all the way through to the end and get really wide cuts, kind of dirty bourbon, just, you know, it's just not going to taste great. It's going to be too flavorful in a sense, because that corn and all the other characters going to get so just overwhelming. Um, Or he can run straight up through a column, but you're making light whiskey at that point. Right. So Jason kind of came up with a way to do kind of a combo of the two. Um, And one thing is that, you know, when we're between our stills, we actually have levers. So we can flip levers throughout the process and we can switch, you know, if we're going straight across from the pot or if we're going up through the column during the bourbon runs. Mm-hmm. So we kind of do a combination of both. And you know, we do some time through the column to get not as much flavor, but really refined whiskey. Sure. And then we do portions through the pot, which is going to be extremely flavorful, lower proof, uh, but give you a lot of that character you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So kind of combining that really, really flavorful, lower proof bourbon with that higher proof, more refined bourbon you come off of something by the time it gets off the still, it's extremely clean and flavorful and it just ages better. Um, and we also are using a great local cooperage um, out of Remsen, New York called Adirondack Cooperage, which basically is making furniture grade barrels that are actually made to put with liquid in. You're, you're not the first distillery I think I've heard of using Adirondack. They've been coming up more and more as I've been exploring New York. And uh, I, I look forward to having them on at some point because I'm, I'm fascinated by cooperages. It's one of those areas yeah. of, stilling in this whole business that people just don't think about, don't talk about. And they really need to. <laughs> well, there's only, there's really only a handful that are doing it still today and doing it well. Mm-hmm. And they, they're one of the few in New York that are truly making incredible quality barrels and they're right in Remsen. So they're, you know, they're kind of a halfway point between the city and between Western New York. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for us, I mean, we can't speak highly enough about what they do. And you should definitely, if you can get a chance, uh, book ahead. They're they're now getting booked out <laughs> crazy, not a lot, only for their barrels, I'm sure, for their their own time. Uh, but I would say if you can make a trip up there, it's worth seeing. Absolutely. I would, I would love to. And I also love when distilleries use cooperage that's kind of local to them. I'm not always in agreement that there's terroir. I think it's very, very dependent <laughs> on the company and the bourbon and the whiskey. Sure. But um, there is something to be said about, you know, New York oak or even you know, oak manufactured and, and fabricated with New York hands, if you mm-hmm. will. So there is something for that. Um, so we should mention in your glass, you said you have the four grain bourbon. Four grain of mine. I'm sipping the Empire Rye, which we'll get to in a minute. Yep. So cheers. Cheers, sir. So one of the words that you used to describe the four grain, and then we'll go on to the, um, the cast drink was, uh, a very light drinking whiskey. And by that, I don't mean light whiskey. It, it, sure. it tastes very light and um, dare I say refreshing for a bourbon, for a whiskey. A lot of them can get very sweet. They can get very tannic mm-hmm. or whatever, but this is, it's it's not going to kind of lacquer your palate. Yep. You know, but it's very easy sipper. It's uh, 84 proof, is that right? The four grain at the blue, the blue, blue label is 84, blue. correct. Right, 84 proof. Um, and just to, to close out my thought on that, the purpose of me bringing up the four grains and younger bourbons sometimes being raw is that when I first tried 
black button. This was about six months ago or so this, before I even okay. got in touch with you. I, I happened to try it um, somewhere else. And I was thinking at the time that I tried a lot of very young bourbon at that point, And a lot of it was still very raw. Like you could tell even with the ones with promise, it needed a little more time. Sure. But, and the overarching flavor profile that was kind of off to me was just that raw grain flavor, like chewing on the grains. Yep. Um, and maybe this speaks to your process, which sounds fascinating. I would love to see it, you know, in person and <laughs> practice, but you managed to strike a balance between, you still very much taste grain. Like I would describe it as a grainy um, bourbon, but the grains don't taste raw and they don't taste like that. It tastes like you took mature grains and made a whiskey out of it. And I know that's a very, it can be a small distinction for some people and some people might still think it's too young. But for me, I, it tasted different than something that I would describe as too young. Like for me, this is a very refreshing bourbon that fit at two, three years old and did what it meant to accomplish. We appreciate that. And I, I think that that lines up a lot with what Jason had in mind. And part of the reason he went for 84 proof is in the proofing down process. That was the, the overall the proof as they practice a little bit that they thought the best flavors came through for kind of a, an all around accessible bourbon. Mm-hmm. And Jason also says he likes to go camping. And he wanted a bourbon he could drink and didn't feel the need to bring ice because it's very hard to keep ice frozen in the woods, obviously. Sure. So I think that was the goal of the 84 proof. Um, but that's also why I like to send the cast strength along whenever mm-hmm. uh, people get to try the 84 proof, because for myself, I am much more of a 108 to 120 kind of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Knob Creek, if I can say a big brand, is one of my go-to big brand bottles. Generally, if I can find a single barrel of Knob Creek on the shelf somewhere, mm-hmm. it, it'll it kick you in the teeth a little bit, but it's it's right up there with a pretty big flavor punch. Um, but I really love seeing the 84 proof, which you're right. It's light, it's refreshing, it's drinkable. It's mm-hmm. gonna stand up enough that you can put it into a cocktail, but it's something you can sip with nothing in it. Whereas I think the cast strength changes a lot. And that Absolutely. flavor profile, it, it just... I'm always impressed because I spend most of my time with uh, Jeff Fairbrother, our distiller, working on blending, working on single barrel picks, trying our cast strength expressions. Mm -hmm. And just I've more and more over the past year and a half fallen in love with the characters and seen them even evolve as we're pulling barrels over the course of a year and a half because the maturity has changed a lot, even just in that period of time. Absolutely. So uh, you can, I don't know why this description just came to mind, but you kind of described the blue label as a, uh, a session bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> um, you definitely, and you're not wrong. No, you could definitely drink a bottle of that. Like don't, cause that's too much, but you could, I don't condone that, but yes, no, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, neither do I, but, uh, you could, you could drink more of it than you think without realizing it because it is so it, and I'll use the word smooth. Cause I do think it is smooth, uh, smooth, very easy to drink, but the cast strength brings it, as you said, to a different level. And it was a surprisingly different profile. Yep. So between the two of them, uh, just going from one to the other, what does your proofing down process look like? So it, it does take a little bit of a period of time. Uh, generally, so I, part of it kind of draws into something we can talk about later, which is we do a full blending program these days um, mm-hmm. that has really changed kind of how we create uniqueness in our bourbon sales. But from the barrel, uh, we tend to see most things. I think we're going in at 115 into the barrel when we start mm-hmm. aging. 
So I tend to see most things coming out between 116 and 120 on average after they spend that time uh, in our climate and based on the size of the barrels. So, you know, we, that's kind of the range I'm used to trying everything in. Uh, and then from there, you know, we're going to, we're going to pull all those together and our, our distillers actually go out and pick barrels. You know, they're going to go buy families of barrels that were laid down within a period of time. And then as they're tasting them, they're, they're trying to define them a little bit different than some might, you know, first, you know, does it taste good? Does it feel like it's ready? That's the first thing we're looking for. Sure. Now we're going to talk about characteristic. So is it a sweet forward bourbon in that barrel, that specific barrel? aged in the same place, same exact mash bill, same, roughly same barrels. You know, we tend to use Adirondack and barrel mill. So other, about 50, 50, I would say at this point between those two cooperages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all this is basically the same stuff, but every little change in aging where it was the day it was filled, the, you know, who rolled it or whatever, it, it just changes what's in that actual barrel that day. So we're looking, you know, is this one sweeter? Is this one spicier? Is this one Oak forward? Um, or what we call the fourth one, we just call like a base. And all that means is that it's just, it's got all of those things, but nothing is so predominant, but it's going to be a nice kind of base or good blending whiskey. So once we've actually determined all that, we'll take all them, we'll label them out based on that flavor. Um, and at the same time, we're also defining, you know, if this is unique enough to maybe be a single barrel. So if one of those barrels is unique enough for that, pull that one aside, it goes, sits in its own group. And then we'll resample of those uh, as a group and decide if we all agree they're single barrels or if they should go into the blend. Now we go back to those four characteristics we've determined. So we're going to take all of those individual characteristics and we're going to put them into their own tank. And then over time, we'll continue to proof them down uh, and they'll either await. The tanks tend to send it about 94 to 96, uh, which is where we end up doing our blending proofs at. Mm -hmm. And then from there, as we determine what our next blend is, because we're going to use that almost, it's kind of a Solera type idea, which was how we started to build consistency in the blue label, rather than just saying, here's 10 barrels that are ready, throw them all together, add some water, make sure we like the blend at the end of the day. And then that's, what's going to hit the market. Now we try to build consistency and continue to live by every batch has to be as good or better than the prior batch. And even though Jason travels a lot and is always on the road or in sales meetings, accounting meetings, whatever, he always signs off on every batch of four grain that goes out the door. All right. Look, it's, that's how you do it. And so going to the cast strength, it's interesting. So you said you go into about 115, coming out at 116 to 120. So you're not really losing much water in terms of evaporation. So what is the climate like? Both, you know, writ large, but also where you're aging. Yeah. So, I mean, we actually, I would say Western New York, we, you know, we get, I don't know, all the way down to potentially negative 10, negative 20. And we never, we have not, at least in Buffalo, never gotten above a hundred historically. Mm -hmm. So we do still get, you know, a hundred degree temperature swings throughout the course of the year. Um, and most of the barrels are aging in what used to be a boat storage warehouse. So metal walls, wide open, all the heat in the summer, it's miserable to be in there. It's freezing cold in the winter. Um, and I'd say like a lot of times we won't, we don't always pull barrels in like January, February, because the whiskey's pretty locked up in the wood at that point, based on how mm -hmm. cold it is. So we might wait until, if possible, till March or April, based on our needs, just as it starts to warm up a little bit more. You know, like right now, it's today was weird. We had a 50 plus degree day all of a sudden, but we started off the morning at, you know, 30 degrees and fog. Uh, but today's a great day. You know, the, the barrels are going to open up. The whiskey is going to start releasing from the wood. We're going to pull more uh, just consistent character across that way. So 
that's, I think the nice thing about the climate is you, we do spend most of the year in colder weather. You know, we're under 60 degrees and 50 degrees for more of the year than we're above. So, you know, you're going to get that low, slow aging process, but based on the size of the barrels, we're still getting a lot of great character uh, at just two and three years. And if I had to guess on our 53s, we're probably going to be somewhere between five and seven years is where those will probably land based on some of the stuff we're trying today. Sure. I mean, it, that makes total sense. And it brings to mind something. Uh, so as of the day, we're just, we're talking right now, earlier today, my uh, episode with Bernie Lubbers from Heaven Hill mm-hmm. just dropped. And uh, my go-to as everyone who listens knows is Elijah Craig Bauer Proof. That's just kind of my, my daily drinker. Sure. Um, that being said, I have noticed through the years that it's been produced that I have consistently liked the the B batches the mm. most. Okay. Um, so, you know, picked most likely in, you know, late March to April, early May and put out late May, June and July. And I asked Bernie about this because of that reason. I was wondering, like, it's just too much of a pattern for me. And yeah. I was wondering, is it because of when they're pulling the bourbon as opposed to the A batch coming out in December, January and the C batch coming out in, in September after the hot months? in Kentucky. So to hear you say like the liquid is locked up in the wood. So you want to wait a little mm-hmm. longer, make, you know, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's nice to hear that those parallels exist at something as huge as heaven Hill and at black button as well in terms of your thought process. So, and plus I just have a thing for metal skin warehouses. I just, I love, <laughs> I don't know why just, I, I love the bourbon that comes out of them. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wish we had sometimes some of this crazy Texas or Virginia heat. I mean, I've got a distillery um, down in Virginia that I, I'm a big fan of, Merlarkey. They do some pretty unique stuff. But, you know, they're doing the old shipping containers out in the hot sun and they're mm-hmm. just hot boxing their whiskey. And you see the red line moves so far into the wood. I mean, it's insane how far right. that red line digs in and that they're just picking up so much heavy, heavy wood and oak character. Um, right. And we get some of that. And that I think part of what you're maybe there is something about you know, that bourbon going in and out so much more during the hotter times of the year than in the Mm -hmm. colder times of year that you don't like as much because then you're probably getting a heavier wood character, heavier oak, heavier tannic character on some Mm -hmm. of the C versus the B might just be a little less of that based on their pulling it right after the colder months. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Port Skeg, Glenallachie, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Right, and you're talking like the red line going too far into the wood. I mean, at a certain point, you're going past the wood sugars and the uh, the compounds that you're really looking for and just yep. getting straight into tannins and oak at that point. Um, but uh, I do know you're right. A couple of distillers, multiple distillers, you say you're using that shipping container method. Um, 
oddly, I know it's conic does as well, but they have more of a temperate climate, uh, kind of in between where you are and where I am. Yeah, exactly. Not as not as cold as you, and not as <laughs> not as warm as we are. Yeah, and definitely um, not that insane Texas heat. That's you know, I think no, that's some of those distilleries are getting. I mean, just that's unbelievable what they can achieve down there. It is, but uh, funny enough, I was talking to um Brandon uh, Jolders' mom. I can never pronounce his last name right from, um, from still Austin. He flat out said, he's like, I don't know why someone would use a 15 to 30 gallon barrel in Texas. Sure. Especially in Texas, because it's just too hot. There's, it's going to burn through the barrel at that point. Yeah. That doesn't, um, doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, we've always said, you know, you couldn't take what we're doing in Rochester, New York and mm-hmm. ship it to Texas, Florida, Louisiana, any of these, you know, hotter, drier, wetter States, whatever you want to call it it would just be totally different. It may just not be good whiskey based on our mash bill, based on our practices and based on the barrels. You're right. I mean, we may have to use 53 gallons. We may have to change the mash bill. You know, we may have to change a lot of process based on that area. So coming back to the idea of terroir, I mean, there is something about the climate you're based in, the ingredients you're using. And I do think that New York ingredients do create a different character. Um, Not again, I've tasted all the New York bourbons and everyone's got, crazy differences between what they're doing. Kings County, uh, Finger Lakes, Taconic, you know, uh, Tuttletown, any of these guys, we're all got different character, but I do think there is something that can be somewhat consistent, you know, and that's for instance, Empire Rye. I mean, that's a great example Mm of uh, a state and a group of distillers coming together to celebrate one piece of the agriculture and the terroir in the state uh, based on a spirit. Absolutely. And, and I, I absolutely want to talk about the Empire Rye portion of it so let's just make sure we close out on the cast strength bourbon before switching over so um again i tried that as well it was this very different profile i was um i wanted to ask one uh about the choice for 110 proof as the Mm -hmm. bottling proof um you kind of answered it in a way with the proofing down method for the uh blue label and uh, how you guys think but of course i'll give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about that as well um, and just anything else we should know about the cast strength and especially the single barrel program that goes along with it. And I think the, the 110 was, it was almost accidental. I, I don't think that there was like some great, you know, laborious late into the evening debate on what proof that cast strength bourbon should be. Um, I think initially we, I think just based on how that batch and I think they had tried it, proofed it slightly and just had liked it. So it is a slightly proofed cast strength. But it's, you know, it, it's just 110 today. Mostly what we're doing is we're really letting the barrels speak now that we have a lot more experience. So, I mean, for instance, you know, a single barrel bottle, you know, we're doing like 116 proof. That's based straight out of the barrel. You know, myself, Jason, Jeff, how we're tasting the barrels. Uh, and especially Jeff and myself, we, we really like it at that proof. We love the character. We, we just think it's so much more expressive uh, right out of the barrel. And again, I think it's just based on the climate. I mean, you you're not getting such an aggressive amount of tannin, uh, mm-hmm. even though we're in that tighter barrelage, you, you're still, you're still getting a ton of the great characters of the whiskey of the grains are coming through. You know, they, they are getting a little more mature. Like you said, I, I really appreciate you saying, you know, that the grains themselves taste mature. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of unique at this age profile, but some of the lighter, you know, you might pick up a little tobacco, you might get some of the leather on the 84, but it's pretty light. Um, I like to say, mm-hmm. you know, I find like a, an orange peel note in the middle of our bourbon, a lot of times the lighter one, but as you get up to the higher proof, uh, I just think the cast drink gets really more expressive in that, uh, those darker tones, those 
those oak characters come through, you know, you get sometimes mature or even sometimes like barnwood kind of characters just based on being a 15 gallon that's been aging for 40 months. Um, And you get the darker fruits, you get, you get so many of those more interesting characters that I'm excited to see how they change as we get to, you know, five and seven year old bourbons. And it's all without making it taste like you're chewing on a wood stave, which is, you know, a big goal, of course. And, um, and this will, you know, be the lesson before we go on to the rye. Um, I do mean it when I say that the grains taste mature and it it held up with the cast strength as well. And uh, it is a, it's a significant differentiator. Mm -hmm. And I really mean that without being obsequious at all. It's, it's a significant differentiator, like you said, at the age statement, at the uh, process level, you know, in terms of the barrel size and, and such. And, you know, if, if it is scientifically possible to pin down exactly what is making your your guys bourbon and and whiskeys taste more mature and i know that in itself is subjective but if there is something scientific to pin down about i'd be very fascinated to find out exactly what that is and there are definitely people at the distillery that are a lot smarter than i am that could probably give you a better answer about that but i i think the simple answer does come down to some of that distillation process we talked about uh the climate the size of the barrels and the blend of grains i mean all all of those main pieces really have helped us to achieve maturity in the glass based on a bourbon that's, you know, right today, averaging three to three and a half years old. Oh, I'm sorry. I completely forgot to ask. Um, sure. As, as it pertains to the mash bill, the, uh, the grains, the grains themselves. Uh, yes. You know, what are you guys using kind of the more commercial strains, even from local farm, but uh, as Edgewood farm, correct? Edgewood Farms, yep, they're down in the Finger Lakes. Um, so we're using a yellow corn base there with them. Uh, we're using winter wheat, so a little bit softer. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we're using Danko rye most of the time. It's a pretty big, fat, uh, heavy grain rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our malted barley uh, coming from that grain, one of the best parts about that is we actually work with uh, Murmuration Malts, which is, uh, I don't always blank exactly where they're at, but they're they're south of us. They're not too far from like Naples, New York. Mm-hmm. And they're just a small family owned uh, malt house that's, you know, doing, you know, traditional malting right down in the Finger Lakes and having to work around the clock seven days a week to make sure they keep up with it. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it's, that's a really high craft malting that we don't, there's not a lot of families doing that themselves these days. So to have that in our, you know, in our backyard really, and have that mm-hmm. available to us is really unique, really, really high quality malted barley. Um, and we, you know, kicked around some other malting, but we don't really play around too much um, with malt spirits. It's just not really our focus. Sure. And, you know, I'd rather let, you know, Westland and other guys make good single malts and we'll kind of focus on what we're doing here. But those grains, I mean, working with Edgewood, having the farmers so close to us, having a great malt house so close to us, it all together that I, I think that's really what's made a big difference in then what we can do at the distillery. You know, we can make a better spirit. We can do that whole process we've discussed just based on having that kind of in our backyard. Absolutely. And uh, having the in-state malt itself is, is an accomplishment. I know many distilleries still are using, you know, imported malt from, from England, from I mean, most of the Scottish distillers are using English malts as opposed to Scottish malt. So uh, yeah. not a new thing, of course, but, and it's funny you mentioned the Danko rye. Yep. Um, already brought up Nick once from uh, dancing goat, but <laughs> I'm curious now, I'm really curious if anyone from your team has, has talked to him or, or his team, because they're also using Danko Rye. And I know it's not a lot of people are using that yet. 
It wouldn't so, shock me. Jason tends to know everybody or has met everybody at a distilling conference or some way, sure. shape or form. Um, that's, that's kind of my growing into managing a lot of our barrel program and the barrel sales. But I, it would not shock me if the two, if Nick and Jason have at some point bumped into each other and had a long conversation about Danko over a few glasses of whiskey. It makes, makes sense. It was just, it's one of those things that was so unique in, in their flavor profile as well for their ride. So it, it just brought up the memory for me. Uh, sure. So with that, why don't we, we'll jump into the Empire Rye. Great. So, you know, again, born and bred in New Yorker, a lot of pride in, in New York as even if we're going all the way up to Buffalo or up to Potsdam, anywhere in New York, I'm sure got pride for it. So the, what is an empire rye? Sure. So empire rye, uh, and us being one of the original six distilleries in the program, it is a spirit made in New York state. It's gotta be at least 75% rye grown in New York state. Uh, I believe it does have to be over two years old. So we are looking for straight rise in the program. Uh, the other 25% of the grains don't necessarily have to be from New York state. I know for us, we're doing a 94 uh, or 95% rye with a, you know, five to 6% malted barley. So we're, we're looking for heavy, heavy rye character, um, which our distillers love because rye is a sticky, messy grain to work with though. We really love the end process that comes out of it. Um, but yeah, so empire rye, it, it's trying to create a spirit for New York state. You know, we're trying to create something, you know, Kentucky has bourbon, Tennessee has Tennessee style bourbons, Tennessee whiskey, whatever you want to call it, or whatever the realities are based on many, many arguments. Um, and we wanted to have something in New York state that's very similar. And, you know, rye, you know, some of the highest rye production in the country was in New York state. Uh, historically, rye was a very popular spirit to be made pre-prohibition. Um, so it just made sense. It, it was one of those that just made a lot of sense to bring back and try to really celebrate that grain and see so many distilleries make different expressions using grains grown in New York state and have complexities, differences, uniqueness based on how they play around with that mash bill. And I want to note also that uh, in advance of the argument of terroir, yeah, the 94, 6, 95, 5 recipe, I mean, everyone might immediately think of MGP in Indiana using 95, sure. 5. I mean, classic. That being said, that doesn't mean that they taste the same at all. Like your, no. your profile is completely different. Um, so the mash bill is not what automatically makes the flavor, which uh, is, I find in rye, it's a little more observable mm -hmm. in, in bourbons. And maybe that's just me, but um, you know, I, I love a good seven-year-old MGP rye. I, I do. But at the same time, you know, you guys have the empire rye. It's a straight rye. It's at least two years old. And this can easily stand up and it's not uh you know heavily dill forward mm -hmm. like like an indiana rye would be or uh heavily kind of savory herb like a monongahela style from uh, pennsylvania yep or even a hundred percent rye from from other places it's, it has its own style so in exploring the idea of an empire rye character how do or how does, I should say, Black Button and potentially other distillers in New York balance the need for, you know, wanting to have this character that represents mm -hmm. New York while also dealing with the obvious, uh, you know, disparities and, and differences that are going to be happening from distillery to distillery within that program? 
I think that that's part of what's kind of exciting to accept. I do think that you will find, you know, like you're saying, you know, the Indiana rise got that dill backbone, the Mahangahela that's got, um, you were saying, what's the Pennsylvania one you normally get? I was saying like a, like a woody herb, like a savory herb. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you will find some similar notes based on New York state rye, but at the same time, you know, we're using a New York Danko rye. Somebody else can use a different strain of rye, uh, you know, different barrel size. So there is always going to be uniqueness, which I think speaks just to like everything else. And with the New York state farm distillers and distillers that are around this state is that we're using this great New York agriculture, but we're all having our own differences. I think that's okay. I think that, you know, it's just like, you know, nobody expects every Kentucky bourbon to have pretty direct similarities. I think more what they're just looking for is they're going to expect the maturity and the quality based on the fact of where it comes from. And I think that that's probably what we're going to see with Empire Rye, especially as it grows, you know, starting off with six and now with, you know, more than 20 distilleries creating or in the process of creating Empire Rise, we're going to have the excitement of seeing different New York rise. You know, we could start to debate, is it, is there a Hudson Valley terroir for Empire Rye? Is there a Western New York terroir and a Finger Lakes terroir for Empire Rye? It, I think that's part of the excitement of it, especially if we could just see that becoming the conversation of, well, Black Button is, has this character, you know, Finger Lakes, you know, only an hour and a half away has this. But if you go down and you have Hill Rock or if you have Tuttletown or, you know, we try Kings County, you know, we just get slightly different characters, but there is maybe there is a string and I haven't found it yet. I couldn't tell you what that characteristic string between them all would be. But I think just the excitement of having a conversation around a New York spirit that ties all the distilleries together based on that. I think that's fair. I mean, to me, I guess what I, the way that I'm perceiving it as, as a consumer even is mm-hmm. that it's uh, more about a, a mark of quality mm-hmm. in a way, um, similar to how like a bottle of bond act would be, or a defining Tennessee whiskey is having to go through the charcoal filtering process, unless you're the one distillery that's exempted from it. Um, <laughs> blanking on sure. their name right now. It's not the larger ones, but okay. um, something like that. Uh, so, but in itself, though, there is the benefit of saying, look, this is an empire rye that means something. There's yep. this organization of now, you said 20 distilleries across the state or near 20 distilleries that mm-hmm. take part in this. Um, so, uh, for me, the natural next question is uh, especially since Blackbone was one of the founding six, what would be an incentive or a disincentive for a distillery to not be part of that program like or what would be the pro or con of not of producing a rye in new york but not being an empire rye it can become a question of you know it some of it could just be cost i mean i think that there it's probably more cost effective to get cheaper potentially not as good quality grains brought in so mm-hmm. if a distillery is just looking at the bottom line i mean you know for us rye production is not it's not what we would call cost effective. I mean, our rise, you know, $75. It's not a, it's not a low cost whiskey. I mean, and that's consistent across all of our own spirits. Um, and I wouldn't say that most of the New York state craft distilleries are, they're not a lot of the $30 whiskeys based on overall. I mean, you're, it's just having a better quality and a better ingredient. So I think that the incentive for being a part of it is exactly what you brought up. I, I think putting yourself with that emblem it means you're making what we would believe is one of the highest quality rise you can create based on using some of the highest quality ingredients that you can get uh, your hands on based on New York state rye being such a high quality product. Mm-hmm. So if 
somebody decided against that, if it made more sense based on cost, uh, or if they just also could just be, they want to go with a different rye mash bill. Maybe they don't want to do 75% or more. Maybe they want to do a 60 or, you know, 55. Um, but I don't know for us, when we thought about rye, I mean, if we're going to do a rye, we're just going to do a rye. We're going to make it a very high rye. And you know, that really great company of MGP, they've been doing it for a long time and having a little bit of success making a 95, five rye. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> so in talking, uh, I, you know, I agree that the distilling history of New York, uh, I don't think this is a knock against New York. I think it just kind of gets lost in the distilling histories of uh, even neighboring states like Pennsylvania is so known for their rye and sure. um, even corn whiskey distillates as well. Uh, but when you look at New York distilling history, whether it's specifically rye or, or distilling in general, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about more about that history that especially like pre-prohibition, because of course prohibition has wiped out everything here and elsewhere. Um, so what is that heritage that we're calling back to? So I do think it becomes that rye was a, just a popular grain and a, and a popular spirit that was produced before prohibition. I think people were, it was a lot more common to find a rye and even in New York state to find a lot of rye being produced. So mm-hmm. as a heavy rye state, it, that was kind of the history that post prohibition never totally came back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that when the farm distilleries started to be a thing in New York state, you know, I think we were number 11 or 12. And a few years back, I think there were over 120 farm distilleries. Wow. So the state kind of made way. And I think the industry and that kind of legislation lined up really well. Uh, I think, you know, the craft brewery boom just changed a lot of people's mindset on how they consume spirits, wine, anything. Um, We already have a great heritage of winemaking that, you know, changed from you know, let's say all the Welch's production back in, you know, the mid 1900s. And all sure. of a sudden you had all, you know, people started to pull that out and, you know, put in, you know, these really old vines. So the Finger Lakes or Long Island where you're based down in that mm-hmm. area, or even up, you know, and where I'm at, the wine production changed. So people changed from thinking, oh, we're all Concord to actually saying, you know, we have some world-class wines being produced in New York state. And now mm-hmm. we're creating world-class spirits. You know, we, there have been distilleries for a long time, but now you have a density of distilling in New York state that's never existed since potentially pre-prohibition. And even I, I couldn't say if that's a fact or not, if we have a higher density today versus then. Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely have a much higher density of people doing it as a craft based on the environment of today, the interest in craft today, and just kind of the culture that's uh, willing to consume and support craft. I think we'll need uh, either Mike Veach or one of his acolytes to do a history of distilling in New York. Cause that's, yeah, it, it's needed. And I would love to find out exactly what you just said. You know, is it, are we at that density again? Is it higher mm-hmm. or lower? And um, just jumping quickly to the wine side of things. I mean, I, I'll admit, I love Finger Lake wines. Sure. Um, particularly I, I argue more so the, um, the white wines as opposed to uh, red varietals, but sure. You know, just love them. Uh, from anything from the big brands to, to lower, but uh, have you guys explored, um, you know, wine cask finishings? So we do one port finish. I should say we do a specifically, we do a port finish. Mm-hmm. Um, we get that port cask from uh, Port of New York out in Ithaca. So mm-hmm. when they actually are ready to dump, we pretty much, they let us know where they're going to dump uh, a port cask if we're looking mm-hmm. and we'll drive down that day and get it. Cause we want it as fresh and as port forward as possible to immediately put uh, aged bourbon into. 
So, I mean, I've seen us put, you know, a, a two or three year old bourbon and sit it in a pork cast for up to, you know, two or more years beyond that. So wow. we're, we're pretty heavy. Jason really, really loves pork bourbon. So he figured if he's going to do it, you know, he, he's, as always, he's going to make something that he likes and mm. he likes a really porty bourbon. So, I mean, we get a lot of that wine, those really deep kind of richer fruit, even not dark uh, character that just digs into the bourbon, but you're also getting, you know, a lot of leather. You're getting a lot of those deeper oak characters because it's sitting in these, you know, these pair of barrels for such a long period of time. I mean, I'm, I'm so clearly you're getting the barrels very wet. Yes, here as well. Almost drenched import. <laughs> exactly. So very, very wet. Uh, and but the the two year plus aging is uh, almost unheard of. And I know it. I'm I'm almost speechless at that age. In a way, <laughs> it's a little bit it's, wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm. So I know it's a deviation from the rye for a second, but the sure. and back to the bourbon. But the bourbon goes into the port cask. Um, at cast strength, at cast strength, correct. At cast strength, um, so it's going in there for, for two years. Sixty gallon port pipes. Yep, and that? it doesn't. I should say it's not always two years. I know we've we've had batches that were maybe six months, but you, you did say up to two years at that. Yeah, but that's, that's okay. True. But I, I do think it's really interesting to talk about like that. One of our more recent ones that was a two plus years in port. Because uh, you're right, mm-hmm. it's it's very abnormal. Most people. Or, you know, I think more like a, a port kissed bourbon is what people I think are more accustomed to looking for. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there there's others that are doing, I've, I've heard of people doing it longer than that, but it is pretty rare that you see people wanting to sit something on a port barrel for so long because it, it does change the whiskey massively. Absolutely. And uh, the reason I guess I was most surprised when you said the two years was uh, I know a couple of the larger brands have done these very long finishes have come yep. out in the last two to three years. Um, and we're talking like two, three, four year aging for a bourbon. And while they weren't necessarily bad whiskeys, it was more a fact that bourbon and corn distillate, especially three grain as opposed to four grain can become mm-hmm. so, um, can get so light and it can be very just, yeah, just stick with light on the palate that, when you age it for that long, it might taste delicious, but the bourbon gets lost underneath. Sure. And so, uh, I mean, I would imagine I, I didn't have the chance to, to taste that one, but I, I want to for sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I would imagine that given what you've described of Jason's taste, that he wouldn't, as much as he likes a ported bourbon, he wouldn't want one that makes the bourbon disappear. So there must yeah. be a good balance in there as well. Definitely a good balance. Um, I do think the bourbon character still sits. And I think that's kind of where I, I use a lot like leather and tobacco. It's just one of those, those characters that I get quite often with ours. Mm-hmm. And I think that holds. So some of those, the really heavier characters that exist in the cast drink bourbon, those will kind of push through the port no matter what, mm-hmm. but you, you're definitely getting porty. I mean, if, if you do not like port, you're going to struggle with our port finished bourbon. Cause it's just, it's gonna, it's just going to, confuse your palate and possibly just turn you off entirely. Um, but if you like wine, if you like that rich kind of pork character, I mean, it is a, it's a d- dessert bourbon to be reckoned with. I mean, it's just something completely different um, while still not totally losing the base of what we want to accomplish at black button with the four grain. Sure. And what's the, um, what is that uh, proofed at? So we pull those at cask. So at cask, whatever, okay. whatever those come out, I mean, I think the most recent one was like one seventeen point one or something. 
Okay. So you're still getting a little more evaporation. I mean, it's still another six months to two years, let's say. So it makes sense. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. I would, this might be something for a trip up there, but I would love to, sure. you know, side by side, something that's been in a forecast for six months versus a year versus two years. Um, as you said, you don't see that very much. Yeah. It's kind of either the kit port kissed or like just drenched for, for multiple years, but finding something in the middle is quite curious. And to be honest, I mean, we've actually, we've had to go too far and because we play, we kind of play really fine on that line. So we've had to rebarrel um, in Oak again, just to kind of balance it a little bit. Like we bring back that bourbon flavor a little bit. Just bring back a little more bourbon in there uh, just to make sure we don't lose too much of it. So in general, that's, I think you're right with saying Jason is trying to make sure it's still a bourbon. We still want it to have bourbon on it. Uh, but we don't mind a bourbon that's just, you know, drowned in port. It's, it's just something very unique and rich and uh, decadent in a, in a bourbon that we love, but you're right. we we're just trying to find that middle line there, but yeah, uh, we'd love to have you try it. If you come up, I mean, to see that difference between those uh, and, you know, port has led us to trying things like apple brandy finish. Um, we have tequila barrels sitting right now. We have a rum barrel sitting right now that we're just kind of experimenting with, you know, mostly like tasting room only release ideas, mm-hmm. but we're kicking around some other agings. Just, you know, it also keeps us nimble. You know, you taste so much of the four grain bourbon. It's nice to have a little change. Uh, sure. Absolutely. And can't speak to tequila on this, but certainly with the apple brandy and uh, to a lesser extent, but still there with the rum, got a proud tradition of that in New York. Come back longer than whiskey. Yep. Practically. Absolutely. So, um, you know, it's not just the big apple that has the apple in New York. That sounded <laughs> so much better in my head, but I still liked it though. I, I still, think at this point still, of the interview, that's good. It still kind of works. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so poor finished bourbon. Um, and you guys also have an American straight whiskey. And the American straight whiskey is interesting because I will say that's the one project that we've ever done uh, blending with not New York spirits. And that's like, we're more than happy to say that mm-hmm. we, we ran out of barrels basically early on for at one point when we had bourbon. So we had more bourbon produced than we had fresh barrels for. So we mm-hmm. ended up having to take some uh, bourbon and put it into once use barrels that we had just pulled from uh, other batches that were done. So we had a small amount of what had to be designated as American whiskey because it was not sitting on fresh oak. Right. So when those came of age and we really liked those as they came up, we didn't have enough to do a whole lot with. We had a few barrels. So it kind of was a question of, you know, do we single barrel them out uh, or do we make a larger batch and actually try playing with some, you know, some Kentucky and some Indiana mm-hmm. and just see what it would do. So it's not black button. We don't put it under the same, you know, it's not under this die cut label. It still has the button on it. But it, it's we try to designate pretty clearly that you know this is not a fully black button product. But the American whiskey, you know, it's it's a lower cost because we're not working you know all of the same high you know high New York ingredients. So on the shelf, it's it's a thirty dollar whiskey, it's a thirty five dollar whiskey, whereas our regular bourbon's a forty nine dollar. Um, but it was really interesting to see what a New York American whiskey blended with some older Indiana and Kentucky American whiskeys uh, would actually do. So just kind of a fun different project that we played around with and honestly i don't i think we're going to run out of it probably this year and that'll probably be the end of it that's fascinating and uh congratulations on running out of the barrel space i should say i know it's not you know in the moment it's probably like oh god what do we do but uh i mean it's it's a mark of mark of progress mark of production so uh, i want to 
make sure to leave a little space at the end for the not just the Empire Rye, which uh, we got into, but also the American Craft Spirits Association, which sure. you guys are a member of. Um, so this is a uh, we've touched on this throughout the interview, the idea of kind of a craft or a different designations and different flavor profiles. So uh, at Black Button, how do you define craft whiskey? Craft It'd be bourbon. interesting to know. So I probably have a slightly different definition from maybe even what Jason and Jeff would, but I don't exactly. I, it's not like beer. Beer has really straight designations, which isn't that just nice that somebody has it for you. I know, right? <laughs> I, I would never want to really define craft as, you know, it's great to say it would be, you know, a family owned or an individual owned distillery, but I, I don't think it needs to be defined that way. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we're part of the Constellation Venture Group. So Constellation, they put a small investment in our company and they're also, you know, an hour and a half from us. So their headquarters are very close to the distillery. Um, they saw the potential, they saw the opportunity, and it's been a great help to us as we've grown. So we have a little bit of that, but I don't think that takes away what makes us a craft distillery. You know, what makes us craft at Black Button is the whole process. It's, you know, we, we are using local New York state grains and we're trying to support our local community in that. Um, we're, you know, we're still based in our hometown. We're still the a family-owned company, even with that investment. And we're still a group of hardworking local people that are just trying to make a great product. So I guess if I were to define craft, I'd probably just define it as kind of the spirit of what you're doing. It's it's just too hard to define it and you know, barrelage or how much you've got because you know we can grow a lot larger but continue to stay with our motto and our focus of, you know, staying local, supporting local and utilizing the ingredients that are here. And that's not to say that somebody in New York state couldn't be a great craft distiller sourcing, you know, ingredients from around the country and potentially even sourcing bourbon. I don't necessarily hate the idea of a craft distillery being somebody who's a craft blending distillery, sure. but I think it all comes down to what your spirit of creation is and the fact that, you're just trying to create a great product in whatever way it takes and do it on a level where, you know, you're probably not going to have 10 acres of open land that you're building a ton of ricks on. And you're probably not going to get five or 10 million people to walk through your door. So I think that's really what it is. It's a spirit of how you produce. And it, if I got really granular, I might say that it's, it's having a, a kind of a local center and a local heart in the process. Oh, that's fair. And I, you know, I did promise you before the interview that there's no gotcha questions. I feel like that one kind of veered <laughs> on the edge a little bit, um, but it really but wasn't my job. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm genuinely curious because I know, and I'll be honest in general, I agree with, you know, how you defined it. It's that sometimes intangible, just sense of purpose of, of style of, you know, with your own hands, if you will. Um, but I know, there's, you know, kind of like the Tennessee whiskey, there's so many arguments around that, that sure could go farther. But I think what you said embodies what craft distilling is. And I want to push a little bit farther uh, sure. on, on the idea of scale. So, you know, you're saying you're already shifting to shifting out of 15s to 30s uh, in terms of gallons, barrels, yep, uh, and eventually to 53s. So of course, that's going to necessitate more space. Absolutely. So uh, in keeping with the, the spirit of the craft that you have right now and a very, you know, identifiable flavor profile that you have the black button right now, uh, where do you see the next couple of years looking like where you're, I mean, it, it seems, cause it seems like you would have to be 
growing capacity, both still capacity and barrel storage capacity yep. to a certain levels. So what do the next few years look like? I would say um, I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, there's always going to be a question of space. And I, I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation for our company is, you know, is there going to be a day that we really need a lot more space? I mean, we can still actually produce more. And as we're, we're staffing up right now, again, post, you know, the prime part of the pandemic now is, you know, hopefully we're going into an epidemic at this point. That's our goal. And we, uh, we're trying to beef back up now because we can be running more production even in our own space. So that's the good news. We, we still have capacity to make more juice, to make more spirits, to make more barrels on a weekly basis. Um, I think right now we're making about 853 gallons a week. Okay. So that's kind of where we're at today and we can be doing more. And we were actually doing more in 2019 before the world kind of you know, shut down and we had to go into kind of more survival mode. So that's one big thing, you know, but can I bump the production back up? Um, we still have room in the current barrel storage space that we can put more barrels in. So that's good news. We're not concerned overall about barrel storage, but it will be a concern down the line. So I think there will be a question of expansion and, and kind of growing into a larger space. Uh, we just don't have anything to announce at this point or any plans currently. And then it'll be the other question is just states. I mean, we, we were planning to go pretty wide nationally just before the pandemic started. Honestly, I think a couple of weeks after March, uh, whatever the date in March that all this started, 12th or 13th, we were planning to really expand nationally and probably hit, you know, go along with RNDC and Constellations Assistance to build into some key states. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we still kept a few of those states that we started to partner with and start to get a little bit better and stronger um, action with last year. But I think it's honing back into, you know, New York State's still the majority of our, our profit. I mean, most of the money we're making is coming out of New York. So we want to continue to make sure that's the game we're focused on is our home state because that's the one Fortunately, with the farm license, we can self-distribute all of our product, which saves, you know, it's, it's a lot, uh, it's a high cost savings for a company of our size still. But, you know, Texas has become a great state for us. So there's opportunity for Texas to grow. Uh, you know, we're in Massachusetts. We got a guy in the ground out there. New Jersey is a state that does fairly well. And, you know, from there, it's just finding, you know, are there a couple other key states where some of our products, you know, they speak to the communities mm-hmm. and how do we support them? Because, you know, we're, we're very much a full Full service, full support. I mean, I, I started in the sales in Buffalo and, you know, from day one, it's like, if you're going to bring in my product, you're going to get my full support. You're going to get to know me. You're going to get to see me constantly. We're going to come in and do the tastings. We're going to market support you. I think that's what Blackburn always want to do is we want to support you in a way that the big guys don't even necessarily do based on, you know, it. we care. I, I care if every bottle that does or does not sell off the shelf at a store. So we take a big ownership in making sure that everything we do works. And I think that's why we have grown in the way we have, and we'll continue to do so with our larger expansion over the next few years, because we do want to be one of the premier craft distilleries, it definitely in New York and potentially in the country. Absolutely. And for now, at least with, uh, even with scaled down production, you know, eight fifty three gallon barrels a week, that's certainly not enough to, to get in every state right now, but sure. I, but you clearly have this kind of business sense of you know, I hate, I really hate using this phrase, but <laughs> go for it. You know, uh, you know, remembering who brought you to the dance and um, staying in New York and the local kind of mid Atlantic to Northeast region. And so there is something to say for that as well. But, you know, who knows? You can always uh, follow kind of the 
what I call the Michter's design mm-hmm. where they've got the, you know, the Fort Nelson right on distillers row in, in Louisville. And then the much larger Shively plant yep. off, off site. And that way they managed to be both in the center of the city, but also have this capacity. I mean, that, that might be five, 10 years down the future for you guys, but sure. You know, who knows? Um, but the idea I would imagine is still like, you always want to have that presence in Rochester proper. Absolutely. And I, I don't ever see the, um, the headquarters for the company leaving mm-hmm. Rochester and, you know, having been able to grow as a company, you know, on a small scale, like, you know, the Inc 5,000 list is one of those that kind of tracks small businesses and their growth. And, you know, we have consistently been, you know, in the top 2000 for like fastest growing small businesses or the top 2,500, um, mm-hmm. which we don't take as a, a small thing for, you know, a, a distillery that's now just getting into the 10th year. So, you know, we've hit, we've hit a benchmark, you know, now we're going to be 10 years. We hit a benchmark, which, you know, I, I kind of always talk about, you know, when a distillery that's making their own stuff gets above the two-year mark and kind of hits that straight bourbon benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty exciting day because that's, that's now you're starting to, people are going to start seeing that. And now you hit the next one, you hit the four-year. Okay. Now people are really going to start listening to that spirit because they start to trust it more. Mm-hmm. You get to the five-year mark and all of a sudden people are starting to compare your stuff with the big guys, because now you're, you're playing in the same field as every other big guy out there, but people can look back at the story and the work that it took to get to that point. And it's a lot harder for us to take that leap in a 10 year period than for Jim Beam or Jack or any of these guys to put out any number of products they're putting out today, just based on their lineage and their history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are a little past the top of the hour. I want to make sure that we get you out of here. I mean, it's not really on time, I would say, <laughs> but <laughs> at a reason, somewhat reasonable hour. Sure. Um, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time with me uh, to talk through Black Button Stilling. Um, I am very excited to see where you guys are are going in the short term and long term. Um, I definitely look forward to keeping abreast of all the changes and, and product updates and all of that. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for representing New York well. No, we appreciate it, David. Thanks for taking the time with us. And uh, we definitely look forward to having you up at the distillery. Absolutely. So as we close out, where can people find you? You can find us on our website. And that's probably the easiest way is to start there and go find the where to buy store. Uh, and also, you know, we do do online shipping right through the website as well. So it's blackbuttondistilling.com. And uh, not to sell yourself short, you also, both you yourself and Black Button as a whole, have a pretty good social media following, at least on uh, Instagram, for sure. Absolutely. Instagram and Facebook are the biggest places you're going to find our updates. So uh, always at Black Button Distilling uh, on either site. Absolutely. Uh, make sure to follow them. I will be putting links to all the socials and the website in show notes for this episode. As always, follow Whiskey My Wedding Ring and the Whiskey Ring Podcast on all your favorite social media platforms. Thanks for listening. <laughs>